0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. I love that video. I love that it gets to portray... Uh, what God is doing, uh, not only here at C4, but around the world. And I I love that we were able to capture some images of some places that we have chosen to partner with, uh, places like Bangladesh, uh, India, and Uganda. And I I just love that God, by His Holy Spirit, is moving in so many different ways, not only here in the Durham region, but around the world. And I'm so excited that we're spending some time in the Book of Acts as a church, in this uh, series that we're taking uh, three different chunks go through it, uh, on the book of Acts entitled Spirit Move, where we've been looking at how do you live, how do you respond, What, what changes do you need to make, what does life look like, what does ministry look like, when the Spirit of God begins to move in maybe a fresh, new, powerful way, and we believe that God is moving by His Spirit. Here at C4, in our region of Durham, and all over the earth, God is moving. Well, I want to say a huge hi to all of you who are here this morning, and for our friends uh, who are up in Port Perry with Pastor Joel and the team up in Port Perry, a huge shout out to you guys. I was up there last week. What a great group of people, and so excited that they're part, you know, of this whole church, C4, and that God is doing great things among us. God's heart has always been for the whole world. God loves all of the nations. God loves all people. Today we're going to camp out in Acts chapter 16, and so if you have a Bible, uh, a paper version like mine, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 16. If you're using an electronic one, navigate to Acts chapter 16. Uh, All of the verses that I'm going to make reference to are going to be on the screen, so if if you choose to follow along that way, then, then you can do that. In Acts chapter 16, we have Paul and his team, Paul and Silas, start out on what we know as the second missionary journey of Paul the Apostle. Now, you remember last week, uh, Pastor Lori, when she was here teaching, she talked about Acts chapter 15 and how in Acts chapter 15, there was the first council, the first gathering because there was a difficulty, there was a problem in the church. And so the council of Jerusalem happened when uh, all of the, you know, all of the apostles came together, all the leaders of the church, influential people all gathered together and they really gathered around one question. And that one question, it was... Has the gospel come to the Gentiles? And if it has come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, is there anything of a religious nature that we need to add to the gospel and to the response to the gospel in order to validate them fully as believers, as followers in Jesus Christ? And I remember, you know, Pastor Laurie, with great passion last week, talked about the centrality of the gospel, and and, and talked about how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we don't need to add anything to it in order to be reconciled fully to God and, and to each other. And in Acts chapter 15, we saw that Paul and Barnabas and the team, along with all of the other apostles, they stood in defending the power, the centrality, and the sufficiency of the gospel. And the Jerusalem council concluded that Jesus had come to the Gentiles and that they had received the Holy Spirit just like the Jewish church had done, the early church in Jerusalem had done. And so they said, look, the gospel has come to all people. So we need to send out a letter to that effect saying there are those who are going out and who are teaching some things that need to be added to the gospel, but they don't need to add anything to the gospel. So in Acts chapter 16, at the start of Paul's second missionary journey, Paul sets off to bring the letter from the leaders in Jerusalem and to visit the churches that he helped to start, to encourage them in their faith and to teach them the things that Jesus commanded and to update them and to help them grow in their walk with Jesus. And so today we're going to pick that up and we're going to look at Acts chapter 16 and we're going to not go through every verse uh, in Acts chapter 16, but we're going to jump around to different parts of Acts chapter 16. So beginning in verses 6 and 7, we read this. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, when they came to the border of of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So Paul and his team have traveled through the regions where they had previously uh, planted churches years before in the first missionary journey. And so if you imagine this map, there's a kind of this circle that Paul went on in the first time out. And so Paul and his companions start out from Antioch and they move on, past and through all of the churches. They have gone through churches like Lystra and Derbe and Iconium as they are going through and seeing how the churches they had first planted are doing and they're there to encourage them. They're there to deliver this letter and they're there just to see how they're walking with Jesus and they want to head west through the province of Asia towards cities really important strategic cities like Ephesus but the text here tells us that the Holy Spirit would not let them go into the province of Asia now this is not big Asia this is Asia minor this is a province this is an area just uh, sort of north of where Jerusalem is and so they want to press in there but the Holy Spirit won't let them So they head north, and they conclude that they are to enter into the province of Bithynia. But it says that when they headed north to go into the province of Bithynia, which is a bit more of a remote area, it says that the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, wouldn't let them. Now, we're not told how the Holy Spirit stopped them. You know, we don't know if it was through circumstances. We don't know if Paul and the team are going along and some things happened that helped them to conclude that the Spirit of Jesus wasn't letting them go into the province of Asia and wasn't letting them go north into uh, Bithynia But we we really don't know how that happened. Like, did somebody on the team have what we would call often a a check in their spirit? Did someone have, like, sort of a a feeling inside that said, you know what, guys, I don't feel good about this. I I know that we've made the plans to do this, but I I really don't know if this is what we should be doing. Like, we really don't know. We we don't, like, did their passports get revoked at the border? We don't know. We have no idea why they got stopped. But all we're told is that the spirit of Jesus will not allow them to go. But you know what? I think that's not what's important in the passage. (laughs) I think the methodology that the Holy Spirit used to stop the team from executing the plans that they had is not really the important thing. I think what is important here for you and I to wrestle through and to talk about and to think about in our connect groups and as we hang out with each other is this. So what do you do when you're following God, when you're following the call that God has given you But you're not allowed to do the thing that you've planned to do. (laughs) Even though it's meshed with your calling. Even though the thing that you're planning to do is a good thing. See, for Paul and his team to take the the gospel into the province of Asia or to go into Bithynia, these were unreached areas. And that was a good thing. And it certainly was in line with what God had called Paul to do. He was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And these places were filled with Gentiles. So why? Why? Why did God not allow them to do that? But more importantly, what do you do when God doesn't uh, let you do what you plan to do, even though it seems the right thing to do? Well, here at C4, we talk a lot about prompting and planning. Anytime the plans that we have don't seem to have any traction, it's always a call for us to go back to Jesus. (laughs) You see, this is really about us. It's really about us and our dependence on God. We we can make plans. We can have plans. We can have great plans. We can have plans that are going to glorify God and further the kingdom of God. But when we get a no from God, God always gives us no's and God always tells us to stop. However, he does that for good reason. All the church knows that we are... In the fall, Lord willing, going to launch a new site over in East Durham, it, probably in around the Bowmanville area, somewhere like that. And so Pastor Chris, uh, who is our sites and services pastors, and, and Deb Early, who's our HR director, they, they've been interviewing and hiring and looking at, at people and all that kind of stuff. We've had tons of people apply, but to date, we haven't found the right site pastor. We, we've had... Incredible people apply and we've, we've gotten close with a few and then they've said, Hey, listen, this process has been so good. I now understand that God has something different for me. And so God has clarified some things in some people's lives because of this. And so after all of this work, after hours and hours and hours of work and over like a couple of months worth of, of just being, doing due diligence through this whole thing, we were not any closer to hiring a site pastor for East Durham. So people start getting nervous. (laughs) People start getting worried. Oh, what's going on? Like, you know, is there something wrong with our church? Do people not want to work with Dave? Is that the problem? Right? You know, what, what's going on here? And so we met as a staff, and what we said was, no, every time that there's not clear direction, what does the Scripture always tell us? You stop. And so we called it a day of prayer and fasting, where the staff and leaders in our church took a whole day to pray and fast and to say to Jesus, okay. We believe this is honoring to you. We believe this is the direction you have for our church. You've shown that over and over again, but we don't have the person yet. So God, you know better than we do. You know way better than we do. And so we come to you now, and we're asking questions, and we're appealing to you to provide. See, it's not so important why they stopped here or the methodology that God used to stop them. But God is trying to teach them and God is trying to teach us something anytime he says no. And that's to always go back to him. To always return to the one that we depend on. To always go back to the source of our leading and our guiding and our plans and our strategies. We must continually submit everything that we do and everything that we are to the lordship of Jesus. Well then in verses 8 to 10 it says this in Acts 16. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So just a quick side note for, for, for you super studious Bible, you know, the guys who drop the, the Jesus bombs in the middle of your connect groups. You see what's happening here. There's, there's a change in the pronouns. It's from they to we. Dr. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts Uh, He now joins the team, and you'll see that there's three sections in the book of Acts where it goes, you know, from sort of the third person to first person, and then inclusive now pronouns uh, with, with Dr. Luke. And so you can look out for them as you go through. So Dr. Luke, the author, has now joined the team. But don't miss what's happening here. The team has literally gone as far as they can go. The Holy Spirit is preventing them from going into Asia and Bithynia. So they've gone west and they've come literally to an ocean. It's, it's, let me represent it this way just using the stage because it's easier to do this way. They, they came up out of Jerusalem and they said, hey, listen, we're going to go over here to the province of Asia. And so they, they intend to go over into Asia and God says, no, you can't go into Asia. The Holy Spirit stopped them. So they said, okay, well, that's where we came from. That's where we were going. So God must want us to go this way so they start going north now into Bithynia and God says no you're not supposed to go into Bithynia so they say okay we came from there we can't go there we can't go there we got to go this way and they go this way and they hit Troas and what happens at Troas is there's a there's a sea the Aegean Sea is there there's nowhere else to go they followed as best as they know how but now they've come to a spot where they just can't go any farther so they stop and they wait now, one of the things that you have to always remember as we're studying the book of Acts is Dr. Luke is really great on detail, but timelines sometimes are a little, you know, not off with him, but it just he doesn't always give us time stamps on everything. So we don't know how long they waited uh, at uh, Troas, but we know that during the night, Paul had a vision. Often, Dr. Luke, in some verses, even between verses, there will be months, even sometimes years, between different sections of Scripture, because it's a book uh, about history. It's a book that's recalling what happened, all of, some of the acts of some of the apostles throughout history. So they stop because they simply can't go. They know where they came from, they know where they wanted to go, they know where they wanted to go, and we're stopped, and now they're at the end, and they're like, okay, God, so what happens now? I love that Proverbs uh, chapter 16 and verse 9 says this, the man, the mind of a man or woman plans their ways, but the Lord directs their steps. <laughs> See, when we wait, when we're following God in our call, when we're following God in what we know that we're supposed to do, when we're trying to be obedient to God, and suddenly we can't, we come up against an impassable situation. We know we can't go these ways, and, and there's a, an ocean here, and sure, we can jump in a ship, but where do you go? <laughs> like, it's a whole ocean in front of you. Will you wait for God? See, here's what I've learned about the providence of God over the years in my following of Jesus. We may not always get the full will and the full plan of God laid out for us, but God reveals His will and He reveals His plan to us, and His timing is always perfect. He is never late, He's often not early. Much to my and your chagrin. I wish God would tell me a little bit more sooner so that I could adjust some things, but that's not how God works. See, what God is trying to test in me and what God is trying to develop in you and me is muscles of faith. And the more we exercise our muscles of faith, the stronger they get and the more they grow. The Bible speaks of open and closed doors. Spiritual wisdom when you and I recognize both in our lives. You know, so often we're so quick to say, Oh, God opened a door over here, but you know, that idiot that I'm working with, the door closed over here. We blame that on someone else. God, the scripture says, opens doors, and God is the one who closes doors. And we are maturing, we are growing, we are developing as mature followers of Jesus when we recognize not only the goes in our lives, but the stops in our lives. I love one person I read this week said this, the heights of following Jesus in life and in ministry are reached by the zigzag trails of altered courses. As you and I look back on our journey with God, you ever sit and look back and marvel at the zigzag course that God has taken you on? Often life is not a perfect straight line. So during the night, Paul has a vision. It's very simple. It's not complicated, not difficult to understand, not difficult to interpret in any way, shape, or form. Paul sees a man, a Macedonian man, a European man, in his vision, and this man is begging Paul. He is begging him, and he is crying out, and he's saying, please, please come over here and help us. See, this is so significant because to this point in time, The gospel has not yet come to the continent of what we call today, Europe. You think about that. For so many of us, for many of us in this place, we're of European descent. This is the place, this is the time that the gospel came to the continent that our ancestors came from so that you and I could hear the good news of Jesus. It's such a strategic moment. What if if God had not stopped them from going further into Asia? What if God had let them go north into Bithynia? You see, God cares for all of the nations. God cares for everyone who's beyond this border, everyone that we can only reach by going through extenuating circumstances. God cares and loves all of those people. What I find fascinating here is God has closed two doors, firmly shut two doors, but God has opened another door. Well, the Macedonians had a proud history. Their country was the seat of Roman power in the region, and yet they had this rich uh, Greek cultural heritage from the days of Alexander the Great and his father, Philippi. The first city that they go to, Philippi, was a very, very strategic and important city in Macedonia. Retired Roman soldiers who had served well and who were faithful and honorable men were encouraged to settle in Philippi. And what, they, what happened and how they encouraged them was they gave them all of the benefits of Rome by settling in Philippi with the added bonus of never having to pay taxes back to Rome. Sweet deal. You can move to Sault Ste. Marie, and we'll give you all the benefits of Ajax and no taxes. What a sweet deal that would be. And so it's full of these uh, ex-Roman soldiers, and, and it's the center and the seat of power. But this bustling city, because of the vision that Paul gets, this bustling city was in need of something far greater than culture or financial freedom or status or retirement on the golf course. It was in need of Jesus. It's in need of Jesus. And so this call goes out, and Paul and the team respond to this call. I love that in verse 10 of Acts chapter 16, it says this, that after the team concluded that this was the will of God. There's this one word, concluded. See, Paul had a vision. But I want to believe, and I want to understand, and I think from the rest of Scripture, I, I believe that this is true. Paul had the vision But the team, through prayer, through fasting, and through talking, and through strategizing together, the team concluded that this was the open door that God had provided. So important, so important that we understand these things. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. Well, then into verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. I love that wherever the Apostle Paul goes, he has a strategy. You you can see it throughout the book of Acts. If you study the book of Acts, if you take the time to walk through systematically the book of Acts, you will see that Paul has a strategy every time he goes out to do church planning, every time he goes out to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to preach the good news. Paul's strategy is this. He always goes to the synagogue, the local synagogue first. Why did Paul do that? Well, Paul is a trained rabbi. Paul has a name. He has a reputation. Paul has all of the degrees. He would have the equivalent of at least a doctoral degree, if not multiple doctoral degrees. He studied under one of the most prominent rabbis of his day. And so Paul knew that as he went out to these outskirts, that here's a big city guy, you know, from from Jerusalem coming, and he would always get an audience in the synagogues. But then eventually, because he was speaking about Jesus and he was trying to let people know that Jesus was the Messiah, ultimately he would get kicked out. He'd get in trouble. But Paul's strategy was this. At least there would be some people who would respond positively to the message of Jesus in those synagogues that he would have the nucleus to start a new church. He would have the core team to start a church in that area. Then he would go outside of the synagogue, usually into streets and into homes, and begin preaching the good news of Jesus there. And the converts there would be joined with the Jewish believers and form a church. That was always Paul's strategy. But now Paul is in Europe. (laughs) Now Paul is in Philippi. And we must assume that Paul can't find a synagogue in Philippi. There is no synagogue to be found. Otherwise, Paul would have stuck to his strategy, and he would have gone to the synagogue first. So he does the next best thing. You see, you needed ten Jewish men to start a synagogue, if there weren't 10 men and you still wanted to worship the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, then what you would do is you would meet for prayer outside of the city, always near water, so that you could do the ceremonial washings that Judaism required. See, that's why verse 13 says that Paul and his team expected to find some people near the river outside the city. And I love what Paul is doing here. He's saying, oh, I come into Philippi. God has opened a door to come into Philippi. Now we're in Europe. How do you like Europe, guys? It's really different. And we're in Europe, and he can't find a synagogue. Oh, my gosh, what are we supposed to do? We should go home. No. Modify your strategy. Make your strategy fit the circumstances. The strategy is not Scripture. The message is scripture, but the strategy is not. So adapt the strategy, but never change the message. So Paul goes outside and he looks for the river, and there he finds some people who have come to pray. And for the rest of the time this morning, what we're going to look at very quickly is Dr. Luke records for us three conversion stories. We get the testimony of three people who are are found in Philippi. Now, there are other people, countless other people, who have come to Jesus through the ministry at Philippi. But Dr. Luke chooses to record three. I wonder why. We'll think about that, and maybe we'll address it a little bit later on. The first person we're introduced to is Lydia, in verses 14 and 15. It says this. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And so she persuaded us. One of the first people... To hear Paul and his team talking about the good news of Jesus was this woman who's identified as Lydia. Now, this may or may not actually be her name. She is from Thyatira, a city that is in a region called Lydia. So she may have been named Lydia, or she may just been known as the Lydian lady. Either way, it doesn't really matter. She's identified as Lydia. And she's a dealer in a very popular, very expensive purple fabric that hailed from the region of Thyatira. And you can read that elsewhere in Scripture. So Lydia is a wealthy, independent businesswoman who has chosen to worship and to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we know that she's not Jewish by birth. She's, she's likely Greek, or some other ethnicity, but she has chosen to follow the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, as revealed in the Old Testament. Now, we're told very, very little of the conversation, but Luke makes sure that we see the divine human interaction that happens in evangelism. Paul gave the message of salvation, but it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Now, not only did she respond to the message, but it says that her entire household did. And and what this would mean, and it's here and one of the other people that we're going to meet in just a moment, it says the same of him. This would mean any children that they had plus any servants that they had. Anyone who was a part of their household. Anyone who was normally under their roof, under their command, under their direct influence is what this is talking about. So here's this woman, this wealthy businesswoman. She's gone out to a place of prayer because there's no synagogue. She's gone out to wash ceremonially and to to pray and to worship God with some other women who are there. And this traveling team shows up. And this team sits down and begins to share with them. I would imagine from the Old Testament right through to the events of Jesus' life, how Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul and the team share the good news of the gospel with Lydia and with all of those who are listening. And it says that the Lord opens up Lydia's heart and she responds. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, the team are persuaded to stay with her at her house. And this is an interesting little note because it may well have been that this became the church at Philippi, the church that Paul writes to 10, 15 years later in the book that we called Philippians. Could could this be the place? Could this be the very start? I mean, she's a wealthy woman. Maybe she had a larger home. Maybe she had, you know, some room for the church to meet. We're not sure. But it's interesting to wonder about that as the very first European convert. Well, the second person that we meet is a slave girl. We don't know her name. We meet her in verses 16 through 18. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God and are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. There's a pattern that we notice in the life of Jesus and we notice throughout the New Testament that any time that the Spirit of God begins to move, any time that God begins to move in a community where people are now meeting Jesus, people are, are you know, coming to faith in Jesus for the first time, Christians are really getting their lives right with, with God and with one another when there's a powerful move in renewal and revival and awakening. Any time that happens, guess what? Satan comes along and tries to disturb and to interrupt you see there's a battle going on there's kingdoms that are in conflict with one another and so that's what we see happening here now this girl she she's following paul and the team around and, you know at first reading you're kind of like hey paul what's your big deal like she's kind of like a great advertisement for you guys the slave girl's following him around and saying first of all these people are from the most high god check true statement And they're telling you the way of salvation. Check. Correct statement. So it sounds pretty good to me. I don't know why Paul got so annoyed with her. Well, Paul's holy discontent is beginning to boil over several days. And after taking this for a few days, he's had enough. The text says that Paul became annoyed, which literally means strongly provoked. And he turned to the girl, and he commanded, not the girl, but the demonic forces in her to leave her, and they did. So why did Paul do this? Like, what she was saying was true, wasn't it? Well, even though what the demons said through her was true, their power comes from Satan, who is called the father of lies. Paul wants everyone to know that his power source is the one called truth. And that truth and lies cannot cohabitate. They cannot mingle together. There is no place for the demonic in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. There can be no partnership, no joint venture, no helping each other out. These demonic forces are bent on destruction of the kingdom of God. They are liars. They have wrong motives. They seek to discredit legitimate ministry, and they seek self-promotion and not the glory of God. And that's why Paul is so upset about this. He cannot tolerate this. Paul makes sure that everyone is clear on spiritual conflict at the start of this ministry. Why? Well, remember, this is a new beachhead for the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel entering into Europe for the very first time. Paul has to make sure that those around him know that he has no part of this fortune-telling, you know, this, this Ouija, this other stuff that's going on over here. That's not from our side, Paul wants everyone to know. Oh, it's supernatural, and oh yeah, it's powerful, and even some of the words might be true. But we belong to a different king, and we are loyal to a different kingdom. And Paul wants to make sure everyone understands that clearly. That's why Paul became so indignant here. Well, verses 19 and then 23, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. In every war, there are casualties. In every battle, someone gets hurt. And because Paul and Silas have been used by God to see the slave girl set free from demonic possession, they are attacked by the slave traffickers who owned her. So Paul and Silas are accused of crimes that they didn't commit. They're victims of racial prejudice, if you read the story. They're severely beaten without an investigation or a trial, and they're thrown into prison and in stocks for the night. But but here's what I love about this story. But Paul and Silas believed in a God who has all things under his control. Paul and Silas believed in a God that no matter what the circumstances we find ourselves in, God can work in and through those circumstances for his glory and for the furthering of his kingdom. They had seen him do it in the past. Isn't this the God that weeks or maybe just months before as the team came up and decided we want to go this way and God said no and they wanted to go this way. God said no and they came this way and God said yes. And when they came they saw God move in power. They saw Lydia and her whole household and maybe other people come to faith in Jesus. So if God can be trusted in the past, can we not trust him in the now and for the future? See, this is what this episode is telling us. This is what this episode is helping you and I to understand. That Paul and his team believed in the power and the sovereignty of God. And you and I can believe in the power and the sovereignty of God too. Well, because they're thrown in prison, we get introduced to our third person. And that's a nameless jailer in verses 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So Paul and Silas, get this, Paul and Silas. They're sitting on a cold jail floor. Their feet are in stocks. Their backs are bleeding from being flogged. They are in pain, they are tired, and they are freezing. But what are they doing? At midnight. Like, I don't know what I would have been doing. Like, for goodness sakes, I get upset when some bozo three cars ahead in the Tim Hortons line orders something more than a tea or a coffee. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, give me a break. You're ordering, like, a bagel? And now you've got to give explanation? Aren't, don't you belong at Starbucks? Where everyone orders, you know, it's all custom made over there. This is the Timmy's lineup. Fast. Let's go. Or have you noticed, you know, because I know how I racked, Like, I do a lot of renovations on my house. Did you see this green parking they now have up the Home Depot? like for the electric cars? Are you kidding me? Right up near the front? What's a guy driving a Tesla doing at Home Depot, and he's not putting concrete and two-by-fours in the back? (laughs) Right? Put his green parking at the other end and let him green walk. (laughs) Us fat, lazy guys need the parking lot, parking spots up close. See, if I get all bent out of shape over that, what am I going to do in this situation? Praying and singing praises to God. It's amazing. Praying and singing praises to God. Because, why? Well, I'm, this text doesn't tell us, but let your imagine run wild. Praying and singing praises to God because... They've just seen the gospel brought into Europe. (laughs) They they couldn't possibly have understood the implications down through thousands of years of history. But maybe that's why they were praising and, and praising God and singing praises. Maybe it was because of the slave girl. Maybe because she followed them for several days. I don't know what it physically she looked like. I don't know, you know, if she contorted when these when these demons would be in her and speak out through her. But they had the beauty of seeing at the name of Jesus this young girl get set free. They've seen beauty coming out of the midst of terrible brokenness. Maybe that's what caused them to sing praises. Maybe it was because they remembered, as Paul later said to the Philippian church. I understand that I get to partner in the sufferings of Jesus. How else can I become like my Savior if I don't suffer like my Savior suffered? Maybe that's what caused them to sing praises and to pray. In their time of suffering, they resorted to what is a time-tested response through thousands of years of Christianity, and it's this, praise and prayer. Praise and prayer. Praise and prayer is always, always the Christian's response to times of suffering, adversity, and difficulty. Well, in verses 29 to 30, we see the results of this. The jailer called for lights after, you know, he thinks all the prisoners are gone. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Not only were the other prisoners listening, but I think the jailer might have been listening too. He's heard Paul and Silas. They've been singing praise and they've been praying. What were they praying about? Well, maybe they weren't praying the North American prayer. Oh, God, get me out of this situation. You know, in my travels throughout the world, that's how typically us North Americans pray. Lord, get me out of it. Lord, prevent it. You know how the rest of the world prays? Lord, help me to have the grace and the stamina to go through it. That's how the rest of the world prays. So maybe Paul and Silas were praying for those around them, for their fellow prisoners, for those who had been condemned to death, that they'd somehow meet Jesus in that jail before they were executed. Maybe they were praying for the jailer and saying, this man who is so brutal, who is so harsh, who seems to enjoy his job a little too much, maybe this guy could come to know the saving knowledge and the beauty of the Savior. We don't know. But when this miracle happens, he rushes in and he's trembling before them because he knows his very life is at stake now and he says, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, in verses 31 to 33, we have their response, and I love this. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. I love what Dr. Luke records here for us. It's not just a one-line response. It's actually a threefold response. First thing he says is, they say to him, You want to know what to do to be saved? Believe. You need to have faith. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we've been singing about, the one that we've been praying to, the one who we are here because we're representatives of his. The stories that you've heard, they're all true. Jesus is who he said he was. And you need to believe in Jesus. The second thing it says in verse 32 is, That they spoke the word of God to him, the word of the Lord to him, and to all of those in his house. Then they followed it up with teaching. You need to respond with faith. You're at a moment now. This is a holy moment for you, jailer. You know that you need to respond to Jesus. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you don't really know much about him. So believe, and then he is taught. Him and his household are taught. And I'm sure what Paul did in this brief period of time that they had was he would tell them more about who Jesus is and fill in the questions and the blanks that this Philippian jailer would have. And then what's the third part of response? Obedience. Baptism. Not because it's essential to you getting saved, but it's essential to showing that a change is made. Right here, right now, Philippian jailer. You need to be baptized. You and everyone else who is believing along with you, everyone else who has believed in your household, you need to be obedient to the word of God and you need to go through the waters of baptism telling everyone publicly that there's been a change in your life and in your heart. I love what Dr. Luke records for us. So, in a move of the Spirit, what do we need to understand? What are Three takeaways that I can give you this morning, very quickly, as we wind up. Well, here's the first one. I'd like to talk just for a second about sovereignty and the will of God. This passage speaks a lot to us about sovereignty and the will of God. You know, what do you do when you've been called by God? What do you do you do when you know that God has put His hand on you, that you are a follower of His, and that you believe that there are some things that God would have you to do? Well, throughout My Christian life, knowing and understanding the will of God has been probably the most frequent question that I've ever been asked. See, many of us have an individual direction or a word or a sense or a leading from God, and that's good, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. And that's often where God starts with us, very personal, very individualistic. But how do we know That that leading, that that prompting, that that word from God is true. How do we know that that specifically is what God wants us to do? Well, I've often found that it needs to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. People that you either invite into the conversation or people completely independently give you an affirmation of the very thing that God is speaking to you about. We saw here in our text that Paul and the team, when Paul had the vision That they concluded that this was what God wanted to do. The community, the team concluded this. And then the third thing that I would say is that it needs to be affirmed by community. By the greater community. By the church. By the leaders in the church. By those in your connect group. By those that you hang out with. If you're sensing and you're feeling that God is doing something in your life, then you have that individual prompting or that individual call. You should you know, seek direction further from God through His Word and through your prayer time. Then you should be looking for God to provide to you one or two or three you know, people who would affirm that. And then ultimately, you should be looking for the whole church to affirm that. See, there's some things called common faithfulness that we all are called to do. We're all called to pray. We're all called to serve. We're all called to witness. We're all called to give. There's many, many things that we would call common faithfulness. But then there are specific assignments that God, through this Holy Spirit, prompts people for. And in those specific assignments, you need to seek sovereignty in the will of God. The second one is this that I see in this passage is, what do you do when there's opposition to the Spirit's move? In the text, it was clear. It was from this slave girl. Opposition should always be expected in every move of God. You and I should expect that if God is doing great things in our lives, if when we read the Scripture, God is more alive than He normally is, if our prayers are being answered, if our fellowship times in our connect group are really good and we're getting along, great. If you're coming to church and you're just loving it and things are going well, you should always, always expect that there will be opposition from the enemy. Friends, we don't have to live in fear, but let's not get caught off guard. Let's be smart. When persecution or suffering comes, and it will come, and it is coming to our country, we need to take the way of the faithful servants who have gone before us, and we need to be people who pray and praise. <laughs> That's why it's so important for us to be involved in worship and in ministry together. And then the final thing that I see in this is the beauty of the church. Where else does a wealthy businesswoman hang out with a former demon-possessed girl and likely a Roman jailer, and they all get along wonderfully well together? That only happens in the beauty of the church. Because we all know that we have a past. And yet Jesus has forgiven us. And that there's this level playing field at the cross. You know, this week I threw out just for fun a little thing on Facebook and said, Hey, why don't you tell me if you're not, you know, if you're not Canadian, what, what, what's your ethnicity? What's your background? And, and many of you responded. I, I did that because I wanted you to see and I wanted myself to see the beauty of our church (laughs) where else where else does a kid from Northern Ireland born into very troubled times hang out with a woman who's from Argentina my friend where where else does does a guy who's born in Canada you know and has had a great career get to hang out with, with my friends back here from Burundi in East Africa And and the stories go on and on and on, and and they're so complex, all of the connections. But you know what the one thing is in common? It's the beauty of the church. This is the only place that you and I get to experience that. Most of us don't get to experience that at work. Many of us don't get to experience that even in our families. But in the church, (laughs) the beauty of the church comes out so loud and clear, You know, every Orthodox Jewish man would pray this prayer every morning. God, I thank you that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. I wonder if that's why Dr. Luke told us about two women, a slave, and a Gentile, as the foundation of the church in Europe. Probably 15 years later, Paul wrote these words from Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What has God started in you? What has God started in us here at C4? Let's be confident, folks. Let's be confident that God is going to carry it out to completion. So let's stand together and we're going to praise Him because praise is an appropriate response to the Word of God. So Lord, we thank You and we praise You for this time that we've been able to spend together. Thank You for Your Word and how it's living and active. And now, Lord, I would ask that our praise, our praise would be worthy to You and we give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.